0: Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast, you'll hear Ron May, Nicole Haley, Val Karma, and Terence Wood discuss PNG after the elections from a politics perspective. We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: Thank you, everyone, uh, for coming. My name is Stephen Howes, and I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre, and this is the second of our two-part series on PNG after the elections. first part was last week uh, on the State of the Economy. And this one is about uh, politics and the the elections themselves. Uh, So before we begin, let's acknowledge the first Australians, the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting. And let's pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, So I'm uh, I'm chairing the event, and uh, we've decided um, not to do this as a standard sort of PowerPoint uh, presentation session, but as a question and answer. So I know uh, there's a lot of interest and it's has got to be more uh, interactive and, and uh, interesting that way. So I'll do an initial round of questions and then I'll hand over to the floor. So it's really expecting uh, questions from you all. Uh, just to begin, I'll give a brief overview of um, the elections and uh, as a background, and then I'll introduce our panel. So, PNG's 2017 general elections were held between 24th of June and the 8th of July. Uh, there was then a long counting period. Both the elections and the counting period were controversial. There was some violence, including four policemen who were killed, the most recent at the start of this month in the Southern Highlands following the final declaration of the election. There were about 3,340 candidates for 111 seats. of incumbent MPs were returned. And uh, both these figures are comparable with uh, recent elections. Uh, So Prime Minister Peter O'Neill's party uh, lost almost half of its 54 seats, uh, but returning with 29 seats. But despite this, O'Neill put together the largest coalition, or the larger coalition, and was re-elected Prime Minister on the 1st of August by a vote of 64-40. This is down from the 85-21 margin by which he survived to vote of no confidence in July 2016. Not sure of the exact latest number, but the Prime Minister has since been successful in attracting MPs from the opposition. My understanding is that the Prime Minister's Coalition now is a size of about 35... Oh, sorry, 75. Yeah, with about 35 in the opposition. And the number of women in Parliament declined from three to zero. So that's the background, just so you all have that. And uh, the... You know the idea of this panel is to discuss those elections and also the broader political context, and indeed the legal context uh, in which they occurred, and in which um, uh, 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 which will set the scene for PNG uh, over the next five years. So now to introduce our panel, I think we've got a fantastic panel uh, here today. Uh, Ron May, Emeritus. Uh, I'm going to introduce in the order in which I'm going to ask the initial questions. <laughs> so Ron May is an Emeritus Fellow at the ANU. He's worked on PNG uh, economic and political issues, I think, for, for much of his life, and uh, including as the Foundation Director of the National Research Institute in PNG. Uh, last year, he wrote an SSGM brief, uh, PNG under the O'Neill government, has there been a change in political style? And I commend that to you all, if you want uh, some of the background you know, from before the election. Uh, Nicole Haley is convener of SSGM, or I think now you must be head of the Department of Pacific Affairs, as uh, SSGM is now called. Uh, she also has long experience of research into PNG, including a particular relevance uh, to today's seminar, uh, leading uh, this, uh, the uh, um, DFAT-ANU uh, observer mission uh, for this election, but also the previous two. Yep. So long and relevant experience. Terence Wood. He's a research fellow uh, at the ANU, he's a scholar of Melanesian politics, he's the creator of the PNG Electoral Database, which is a really good resource if you're interested in PNG elections, and he was an observer of the 2017 PNG elections, and he's since been writing several blogs on it. Finally, Balcama is a PhD student at the ANU, he's worked as a lawyer and lecturer in Australia, and he's a close observer of and commentator on the numerous intersections in PNG between politics and the law. So uh, please uh, join me in, thank, in welcome and thank our panellists. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Ron, we'll start with you to... Uh, can I ask... Sorry, I should have asked you before. Do the panellists mind uh, micing up? And we will be uh, recording this as a podcast. So we do have a mic, so I would also will ask you to use a microphone uh, when you ask your question, uh, so we can... Uh, you know, the recording's clear, both the questions and the answers... Um, I'd also say for the uh, panellists, you know, you're welcome to comment on other people's answers and add, you know, add your own observations. Uh, So it is meant to be an informal session. Okay, I think we're set. So, Ron, uh, we'll start with you to give us the political context. Who are the winners and the losers from the 2017 election?
2: Okay. Um, well, winners and losers, we can address that at several levels, I think, but let me start off by, uh, by looking at the individuals, uh, which tells us a lot about the election anyhow. Um, you'll also probably hear different figures from a the, from the lot of us here. It's very hard to get exact figures on some of these, and, but our figures were much in the same ballpark. Um, Stephen quoted a figure of the number of candidates. My figure's slightly different. But the first point I'd make is that there were 3,324 candidates standing, more or less. Um, so that the first observation we've got to make with 111 seats standing is that 3,213 candidates are going to be losers. Um, looking at the turnover of figures, which we try to do... Um, I make it about 49 sitting members, actually, or 48 members returned to their own seats. Uh, One member went from an open seat to a a provincial seat and one. so 49 members of the previous parliament were re-elected on my figures. That means that a fair number didn't get re-elected. It means a turnover, uh, well, I should say there were three seats, uh, four seats vacant, either through people dying Uh, or being charged with misappropriation of funds. Um, One died during the campaign and one member didn't stand. So allowing for that, we've got a turnover of something like 55 to 54% of members, uh, which is about half of the course in Papua New Guinea elections. So okay, who are the winners? Uh, I guess uh, since he's returned as Prime Minister, we've got to count uh, Peter O'Neill as a winner. On the eve of the election, the Prime Minister was facing uh, an arrest warrant over his alleged involvement in some corrupt dealing, which he'd managed to postpone, uh, having served for about three years by uh, having smart lawyers who could keep on finding grounds to uh, lodge appeals and postpone making a decision on this. Uh, He was also faced with increasing calls from everyone, from students to former Prime Ministers, to step down while this was being investigated. Uh, there had been uh, student uh, boycotts of the universities, protest marches, civil obedience day and various other things. Um, we'd also uh, seen two members of the winning of the governing coalition defect. Uh, ben Micah had left with the PPP uh, cohort in the parliament and then just before the election, uh, O'Neill <coughs> and the... Uh, uh, Treasurer Patrick Pruitt had a falling out, which meant another of the major coalition parties was gone. Against all that background, a guy who can get re-elected in his own seat and go on to form a government has got to be regarded as a winner. Uh, but to put this in some perspective, I think <coughs> we should remember that O'Neill was elected as Prime Minister in 2012 uh, by a vote of 94 votes to 12. Uh, towards the end of his term in the uh, in, uh, July 2016, uh, he faced a vote of no confidence, or actually he didn't face a vote of no confidence, but eventually was forced by the Supreme Court to face a vote of no confidence, which he managed to win by a vote of uh, 85 votes to 21. in the election for the Prime Minister this time, his, uh, his vote, or the figures I have, were he got 60 votes to 46, which is a fairly substantial loss of support for the man. So, OK, he's a winner, but I'd say with some qualifications. On the government side, other winners worth mentioning, I think, are uh, uh, Charles Abel, who's now the Deputy Prime Minister and the Treasurer. Um, uh, I, th- I think probably one of the better elements of the government. Uh, William Powie should be listed because he's the latest person to be declared. He's only just been (coughs) declared uh, against the background of tribal fighting in the Southern Highlands, which allegedly has killed off something in the order of 20 people. Um, Two other people that I think deserve a mention as winners in this are William Doomer and uh, Fabian Pock, both of whom uh, are facing leadership tribunal uh, cases uh, on alleged uh, fraudulent deals over land they not only managed to get re-elected, but have been reinstated to Cabinet. So by some criteria, I guess we've got to regard them as winners. On the In the opposition uh, ranks, <coughs> Sam Basil was returned. The Deputy uh, Opposition Leader has been returned with uh, an increased vote for the Bundler Party. I'll come back to that. Patrick Pruage, who split with O'Neill just before the election, uh, was also returned with an increased number of National Alliance supporters. Uh, Makiri Morauta, after a term out of Parliament, was moved by his opposition to O'Neill to stand again and was re-elected. So that's at least one really good person in in the Parliament, I think. Amongst other government people, uh, opposition people who managed to get re-election, Karanga Kua, the former (coughs) Attorney General under O'Neill, who um, broke with O'Neill and has been a consistent opposition person. Uh, the uh, Obstreperous Belden Nama is back again uh, for, for some uh, some entertainment. I think uh, Gary Jufa uh, and um, well, it's probably of the worth mentioning. Those are the figures who got back uh, from the pre-election opposition, plus uh, Maralta. And I think two of the names that are worth mentioning in this context are Brian Kramer. Uh, who was elected as uh, a Pangu candidate, a well-known blogger and uh, a fierce critic of O'Neill, uh, who incidentally, as a, as a short footnote on Papua New Guinea politics, was charged with murder at one stage uh, uh, over, um, by a an opposition candidate about which he'd taken a petition out. Um, That charge was dismissed eventually, but it it pinpoints the danger of blogging under your own name. He's now in the parliament, so he's presumably got a bit more security. Uh, And the other person I think worth mentioning is Alan Bird, uh, a businessman from East Sepik, who stood against Samari in 2002 and came quite close, stood again in 2007 and wasn't so close, and then gave it up for a while, but has come back to replace Samari as the provincial governor in ECB. And I think he's a very bright young man, good businessman, largely associated with the uh, the uh, vanilla boom in ECB province. Uh, he's a former agriculturalist. Um, he's a man worth watching too. Initially, when we got that sort of selection, I lapsed into a little bit of opposition that at least the government's opposition, uh, the government's... Uh, uh, leadership gap had been reduced and the opposition had some fairly strong candidates. I thought for a while, OK, we are likely to see some stronger opposition in Parliament, uh, and which I've argued elsewhere has, has been lacking, sadly, uh, with the result that most of the opposition to government has been taken place through the courts or through social media, neither of which I've, I think has been a very promising avenue. Uh, but looking at the losers then... <coughs> Uh, First mention, I think, should go to Ben Micah. Having split with uh, O'Neill in 2016 and announcing his prime ministerial ambitions, uh, he, in fact, lost his seat, uh, over which there will be few tears in a lot of places, I think. Uh, Arno Palo, who was um, O'Neill's replacement for the Attorney-General who opposed him, uh, who himself has survived uh, charges of, Contempt of court and uh, misuse of his uh, <coughs> district support fund grants uh, lost his seat. Uh, Theo Zernok, uh the former speaker uh, who gained distinction by cutting off the carvings from Parliament House and burning them because these evil spirits were distorting the events in the Parliament, uh, also lost his seat. On the opposition side, um, I, I should say also Leo Dion, who was in my opinion, a fairly colourless member of the last parliament, but was the Deputy Prime Minister, also lost his seat. On the opposition side, Don Pollier, who's had an up-and-down career um, as Deputy Prime Minister under Samari and then broke with Samari, uh, became um, Treasurer under uh, O'Neill and then split with O'Neill, eventually lost his seat. Um... uh, that's probably the main one. controversial one. Um, and uh, uh, Tobias Kulang should be mentioned, I think, because he not only lost his seats but been charged with the murder of one of his opponents. So he's a fairly distinguished uh, loser. On parties, I think we would generally agree, I think, that parties play a very minor role in campaigns but play a much more important role in coalition formation. This time round, the winner... Well, the two winners, I think, have been Pangu which I'll have to say something in a second, Briefly and uh, National Alliance. Uh, both got uh, large increases in their followers. Um, the losers, of course, were the People's National Congress, which on the eve of the election had 55 members and ended up with about 28 plus a few more who've joined since then. The Triumph uh, uh, Heritage Empowerment Party... Lost its leader with Polie, and also lost members. Uh, PPP lost its leader, but has most the same members. Um, Pangu, however, uh, just a few weeks ago split from uh, the opposition, and uh, Sam Basil, the party leader, and initially nine, and now twelve members, uh, eleven other members of the party have split. So three quarters of Pangu have gone across to the government and four of them, including Moralta and Kramer, remain in the opposition bench. Uh, Fewer independents were elected in this election, which some people have taken as evidence that parties are becoming more salient. I remain to be convinced of that. And an interesting development is the announcement in Morabee, in Anger and in Heller that the members will try and block together in Parliament to pursue their province's interests. Beyond that, women were losers. The three members of the House, as Stephen has mentioned, all lost their seats. Uh, One of them was facing leadership tribunal uh, proceedings. The other was Hannah, who was heavily involved in the the Parliament House carvings removal, uh, guided by the prayer warriors from Israel. Uh, But those three have gone. So of 167 women candidates who stood, we have none left now. Beyond that, I think we could say the election commission uh, has been a loser, uh, and I would say the people of Papua New Guinea are losers out of this election, but I'll leave that to my colleagues
1: to follow up. <laughs> All right, Ron, that's a very comprehensive answer. You've certainly given us a lot. I'm not going to allow any follow-up. I'm going to go straight to the next question, uh, which is for Nicole. So, Nicole, as I mentioned, uh, you've uh, headed these electoral missions. I think this time you had a 250-person strong team. It's the third time you've had an observation team. How do you compare the quality of this election to earlier elec- elections in PNG?
3: Uh, thanks, Stephen. Look, I think there's very clear directions that our elections are headed in, and I think the, um, you know, the sort of the quality of the election uh, has deteriorated significantly. I think both in terms of the um, electoral administration, um, and in part. Um, one of the things that's contributed to that, I think, was the decentralisation of the um, delivery of the election, so pushing uh, those responsibilities out to provinces. So we see um, something that we've seen before that is elections are highly variable across across the country. Um, but that said, I think um, you know we've seen. Uh, Again, money politics playing a very significant um, role in the election. Money um, was used very differently in this election, I think, to the, the last two elections. It was very uh, significant but less less money flowing down to individual voters but being directed towards um, key individuals, whether they be officials or... Um, strong men in communities, so people who could affect results were the key beneficiaries of money politics this time around. Um, I think uh, electoral fraud and electoral malfeasance was uh, far more brazen um, than in the past. Um, I think you know we can see uh, uh, that it's extending geographically into um, into new areas. Um, uh, but where we saw it, you know, some, some very um, clear cases, a very brazen sort of fraud, very brazen manipulation of the electoral roll um, and around distribution of ballot papers, etc., which saw, you know, in, in some key electorates um, effectively um, a voter turnout of more than 150% and in some cases... Um, 200% in in key electorates that delivered particular results. So um, I think when you can drill down to individual electorates, you can get a very clear sense of of what's happened. It's a little bit more difficult, and I'm sure Terence might talk to this, to sort of show, um, you know, systematic, um, you know, sort of manipulation across the country. But I think what we can clearly see is where people have... People who've been able to uh, capture the election have done so far more effectively than they have done in the past, Um, but that capture hasn't been solely by the government uh, or the the incumbents. So in some cases that capture has been affected by um, their key opponents, but I think the capture has been much greater than in the past.
1: Okay, Greg, well, that does lead on to the question I was going to ask Terence. I might go straight on to that. Uh, well, Terence, you've uh, described the 2017 elections as a mess, uh, but you've tackled this issue of whether there was centralised subversion, and Nicole's just commented on that. So perhaps give us your take on that. Where do you think the evidence points, and, and what do you think went wrong?
4: Sure, and then one thing
3: to note right from the outset is that
4: uh, while a lot went wrong, uh, certainly in many parts of the country, a lot went right too. So where I spent the election in Ley, there were many challenges, including uh, um, issues with the role insufficient sufficient police protection, things like that, but the vast majority of voters in Leigh wanted to do nothing more than exercise a democratic right. And the vast majority of polling officials in LA too did nothing more on polling day than try and make the polling process run smoothly, despite working under really adverse conditions. So uh, there were many problems, but it is worth noting that quite a few things went well. Unfortunately, elections are this exacting kind of area where everything has to go well for anything (coughs) to go well in aggregate, and that's the challenge facing Papua New Guinea as it moves forward. When it comes to talking about the problems that confronted Papua New Guinea on election day or election week in uh, in 2017, it is worth, I think, trying to distinguish between two different types of election problems. First up, there are Papua New Guinea's perennial election problems. So there's the under-resourced electoral commission, there's the administrative mess-ups, um, there's issues at polling stations, polling fraud, polling station capture, um, and, and things like that. And these problems aren't new to 2017. Uh, and their cause, I think, is simply Papua New Guinea's uh, pl- clientelist political economy. Um, so this is a situation where voters, by and large, vote on the basis of local issues and in search of localized or personalized benefits. Perfectly sensible thing to do, but it incentivizes politicians to focus on getting their hands on money and redistributing it to supporters rather than governing the country well, rather than attempting to tackle national issues. And national electoral quality is a national issue. So Papua New Guinea's politicians have no political incentive to try and run elections well. And that's a source of many of the ongoing electoral problems that Papua New Guinea faces. It's a structural issue, and it's not particularly new. It's not something that arose just in 2017. However, at the same time, uh, problems were indeed particularly acute in 2017, as both Ron and Nicole have said. Um, And there's no evidence to suggest uh, wholesale capture of the electoral commission occurred in 2017, wholesale capture being something that you might see in an autocratic country. However, um, there is some evidence that points to a degree of assistance to the prime, uh, being provided to the Prime Minister and to his political party um, from somewhere within New uh, Guinea's National Electoral Commission. The evidence comes in the form of probable net roll inflation and PNC-held seats in the Highlands, so this is something that Paul Flanagan uh, identified first, um, and also comes in the form of a series of questionable uh, Quite some series of questionable electoral decisions emerging from the Papua New Guinea Electoral Commission throughout the electoral process. Um, and one after the other, they all tended to point in the same direction. They all tended to be decisions that favoured either Peter O'Neill himself or PNC candidates. Um, this evidence isn't definitive, but it's concerning. I um, mean, if a political faction or any powerful political faction has managed to gather a degree of influence over the National Electoral Commission, um, then that's very bad news for a democracy in any country. And I don't think it's something that's happened in the past in Papua New Guinea. So it's something that really needs to be watched for and counted in the future. Uh, even if you do that, you're still going to have to face the perennial problems, that, to some degree at this point in time, they are secondary to the immediate issue, which is possible capture of parts of the electoral system. That's what
1: i to say. Thanks, Terence. Uh, Now, Al, to you. Um, The Prime Minister has faced a number of legal challenges before the election, as Ron pointed out, and then uh, in relation to his own victory, but he seems to have fought them off, and the challenge to his electoral victory has already been withdrawn. So which cases are left? And as far as the courts are concerned, do you think the Prime Minister has anything to fear going forward?
0: Thank you, Stephen. Um, There were two cases that really threatened... um, uh, Prime Minister going forward, and one of the, the first one was the arrest warrant, and the other one was the USB law. Uh, and those, these two cases were somewhat um, saying to us that Prime Minister cannot make it, or he's not going to make it till elections because uh, the the court's going to step in and things going to change. But unfortunately, uh, that's not what happened. Um, at the, the USB case, the substantive issue of whether or not the borrowing of the money was constitutional, the court did not decide on, on that. It came to the question of whether um, the public prosecutor handling of the case was technically right, and the court said no. So on that question, that case was dismissed. So the substantive question <coughs> did or is not... It's not resolved yet, uh, but that that uh, case um, basically is now off, is now out of the court. Now um, the case on the arrest warrant, took two different parts. So the first part was pursued by the finance minister James um, James Marape, and his question was whether <coughs> or can the court decide the legality or the reasonability of the payment to. Paul Paraka lawyers, and if the court can decide that the payment made were reasonable, then those who are implicated in the, in the whole transaction should be or should not be held liable. Uh, they should be set free, basically. So that includes um, uh, Peter O'Neill. And the court says, no, uh, this is a civil matter. And Peter O'Neill's case um, is a different matter to, or, altogether, and you cannot Combine both, so one is a mass more criminal case, and the other is a civil case. Now, so that's the first path, which uh, did not work out. Mm-hmm. So the second part is the arrest warrant. Now, the arrest warrant um, went from again the question of substantive question of whether or not the arrest warrant should be executed, to the question of whether the people who who allow the arrest warrant have the power to do so. So it became a question of questioning the authority behind the arrest warrant. And that seems to be a norm happening lately in Papua New Guinea, where every time uh, cases attend again and then questioning the authority behind the case, not so much the merit of the case itself or the uh, substantive question. And that, I guess, delayed that case uh, for a while. And as we understand, Task Force Swip is no longer acting on that case. Um, Just before the election, the the court explicitly told Task Force Swip that, hey, you should not pursue this case. Let the people decide this case. And I've written written something on it, uh, which the court gave the question of justice to the people, (coughs) hoping that people will cast judgment on PNC and Peter O'Neill, and obviously not. Um, so the question came back to the, to the court, and one week after Peter O'Neill was sworn in, the court decided that the arrest warrant is valid and should be executed. Um, and quickly, an appeal was launched uh, to the Supreme Court, and now the Supreme Court is, uh, is not deciding on this case. So we will have to wait and see what the court thinks. Um, and on this, I think, point, which, uh, what are some of the cases that are still there for Peter Well, that's the first one. Um, that, is, that is somewhat a big case for Peter because if the court decide that the arrest warrant is valid and should be executed, then the, um, the whole chain or the whole wheel will turn. And that's basically assuming that the uh, police commissioner is happy to go along with it. But as we can see from previous cases, the police commissioner might not want to act quick, and then it will now basically trigger other cases, uh, content of court cases and things like that, which are likely to happen given history. But we never know, things might take a different twist. The other case uh, that's pending with Peter O'Neill, which was just removed last week, uh, was the question of whether the election conducted in Peter O'Neill's district on a Sunday, uh, whether that was a valid election. And if it is not, then uh, Peter O'Neill's election is not valid. Now, the organic law states that uh, elections should be conducted during the weekdays and not on weekends or on Sundays, uh, on uh, public holidays. Um, But whether the whether the um, petitioner, I don't know what the reason is, uh, whether it's for a peaceful outcome, as he stated it, uh, that he has to withdraw the case, or whether it's a question of whether the price was right for him to you know, take the case out. And uh, some speculate that there might be other reasons behind it uh, that influence the petitioner to remove the case. If the case goes forward, um, would it, what's the likelihood of that being successful? Um, I think it depends on how one puts the argument forward before the judges, and it'll be interesting um, to see whether uh, the court can really look into it as a more strict legal uh, construction and say that Sunday voting is a legal law, will it be taken as a um, circumstantial thing. And so that could be allowed. So this case is gone, and I think the only case that now remains or hangs over Peter O'Neill's head is the arrest warrant uh, case. Now, how serious is it? think um, the last question. Well, it is serious, uh, I think, because it will, like I said, trigger the police officers to act. They're waiting for the Supreme Court to make the judgment. Mm-hmm. And it is serious, But one should also state that um, after the court had made a decision, then the matter is out of the court's hand, and it's back to the police. And so uh, politics is likely to play to police, police affairs. So the question is whether the police would uh, pursue this case without interference. Um, that's something that we hopefully Hopefully not, uh, but that's I think that's a big question that hangs. After the court let this case go, then can the police take it on board without interferences?
1: Okay, thanks a lot, Val. So I think our panel's done a great job of giving you the uh, political, electoral, legal context, and uh, now I'd like to invite questions from the floor. So, yeah, you can see Steve and uh, then Michelle. So I think we'll just take the questions uh, at least initially one at a time, and I'll invite you know multiple members to, um, to give their comments, so... At the back, and then Shannon, Michelle. is
2: Steve from AMU. Um, My question relates to uh, the issue of the nature and the extent of insecurity, uh, violence, and, and deaths that occurred during the 2017 elections there were come some key stakeholders and observers who describe the elections as safe, free, successful elections. Uh, but on the other hand, we heard others who, who describe them as very insecure, unsafe, high levels of violence, significant numbers of deaths. So one of the problems that we face is that we don't have a lot of um, consolidated comparable data on this, um, something that we're trying to address at MSHTN. But... I guess my two two questions to the panel, one is what explains the difference in those perspectives? Um, and the second question relates to whether or not from your perspective, what, um, whether there was a, is or was a discernible difference in the nature of insecurity, <coughs> violence and death through the 2017
3: election. Anyone? Um, So I'll talk to the places that I've observed, and that was particularly in in the Highlands over the last few elections. And um, I think uh, these elections, the the level of insecurity was um, much higher. So if I think about... The last two elections in particular, and um, voter turnout was very high. so I'm echoing. Sorry, don't turn it down. Um, uh, And I have photos from 2007-2012 through Helen, Western Highlands, etc., where you have um, large numbers of men, women, and children at polling places, and you had um, women, and indeed children, participating in the election uh, as voters. Um, A large security presence in those elections that kept um, uh, a lid on the overt violence, um, and there was certainly a lot of uh, tension in in those elections. To my mind, this election, certainly where I was, had a very, very different feel about it. Um, Even though there was a large security presence, Um, That was, they seemed much more to be uh, in vehicles roaming about the road uh, and less security presence at polling stations. So there was uh, less control at polling stations than there had been um, previously. But uh, in this election, to my mind, uh, a huge proportion of the population was Locked outside of the electoral process, um, and in hell, that was quite literally. I mean, polling stations set up behind um, fences with a few, you know, a few men, uh, particularly polling officials, etc., inside filling out the ballot papers with, um, you know, women in particular, women, children, and other members of the community, literally locked outside watching that process um, play out. So there wasn't the same sort of um, Uh, freedom in that sense to participate in the process that there had been um, in the past. There was also, um, I think, money politics has increased the stakes um, around that. And so large concerns about retribution. So when people have taken money... Um, in terms of vote. And what we saw with the manipulation this time around, and to give an example from Heller, we saw systematic inflation of the role in particular places and systematic um, uh, reductions uh, in the role in particular places. So the typical scenario that I saw on polling day was uh, a few polling places where, they, where the enrolments had gone up by about 400%. Um, And those places, people were busily filling out on the ballot papers. Um, The majority of polling stations that I went to um, had the opposite problem where the rolls had been reduced significantly, um, but people had made promises, had accepted money, had eaten the food of particular candidates. And so what was happening on polling day was communities trying to work out, for the most part, peacefully, how they would deal with the, the problem of having half as many ballot papers as they had expected to receive. And so uh, how would they divide those up? There weren't enough ballot papers for everybody to honour the commitments that they had made. And so there was um, within communities large discussions about fear of retribution. Because, you know, who gets to honour their commitments? Is it just the people whose names are on the roll? Do we split them evenly between the clans in this particular place, etc. So nobody gets to honour their commitments. So Um, and and that led to to violence. So um, in the electorate that I followed very closely for the last five elections, um, Corabalet-Copiago, 21 of 81 ballot boxes were actually destroyed, Um, and that was often by communities fighting amongst how they would would do this. In that particular case, um, of those 81 boxes, 21 destroyed... um, there was actually, in the 60 boxes that was counted, there was 200% voter turnout on those particular boxes. So massive irregularities, um, a lot of concern about violence at polling places, that meant that a lot of people stayed away. Those that did turn up wanting to vote were often locked outside of the process and there has been a huge amount of sort of post-election violence and, you know, Mm -hmm. retribution where people haven't been able to honour their commitments. So, um, yeah, I, to my mind, it had a much, a very different feel about it, um, and it and it was more violent. And it wasn't just a case of it being more visible in terms of, you know, some people have argued, well, you know, social media means that um, the deaths are more visible. Um, one of the things that was very clear from the debrief workshops that we've had. Um, both with our observer team and the debrief workshop that we had with women candidates um, a couple of weeks back, the, the deaths that have been recorded in social media and the media um, are but a fraction of the deaths that our teams um, were reporting uh, to us. So it might be that they're more visible, but even then the, the deaths certainly exceed what has been publicly reported.
1: So what about...
0: I
3: think something that I'd like to touch on the first part,
0: uh, there are four main actors in an election. One is the observers, both domestic and foreign. Uh, the other one is the electoral commissioner, and then you the security officials and the locals. The challenge that I had was whose voice should I trust? And I think that's the thing that, really troubles um, the information coming out. We're getting one set of information from the locals. And at the observers, were giving us a different, different set of pictures. And one was bold and one was not. And you were thinking, Who's, uh, who is the more uh, uh, trustworthy, trustworthy voice here? And whose voice should you now respond to? Shribal, just to clarify, are you Absolutely. saying the observers were more optimistic than the locals
1: or the other way around?
0: Well, I'm not, I think I'm not going to judge it's just different. on that. I think uh, you all have your own views about uh, the extent of their, of their reports. Uh, but I think there were definitely some differences. Uh, and the, the way they, they see the election, um, some of them was quite different to how the election has been painted. Uh, by the locals and our security officials, so I think that's something that probably going going forward there needs to be an, a bit more open conversation about the integrity of the election, and do so without um, uh, terms and conditions. And I think if we want to make the elections much more stronger, then, then that that needs to happen a bit more, because now we're seeing more the locals coming out talking about how how bad the election is but we're not getting it that much force from those who are who are supposed to cast a bit more objective judgment on it.
1: Okay. okay, Michelle.
3: Thank you. Um, Michelle from ANU. My question goes to all of you. Um, why weren't any women elected? And... Um, Given the limited resources that are available to everyone who's interested in this issue, what can we do possibly to catalyse change starting now as we think about the next elections? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll have a stab. I think um, the, you know, the, the increasing sort of influence of money politics Violence, etc., are just making the playing field that much harder for women to to get elected. It never was a level playing field, but the um, certainly the um, you know the it's that much harder when you're dealing with um, you know significant fraud, etc. Because the you know ultimately to to capture the election. and you know, going on from, from Terence's point, um, you don't need to capture the election centrally. Because uh, delivery of the election is decentralized now, that capture is happening locally. Um, it's happening at the provincial and the district level. But um, capturing the election costs money. Um, and so that's why it's um, particularly difficult for women to get elected. Um, I think that historically uh, the support, you know, certainly development partner support for women candidates um, has come uh, very late in the piece. It needs to be um, much more sustained. Um, even though no women got elected in this election, I think there were some really good examples um, of women who campaigned smarter. So, and and I think... Uh, Overall, there are a number of women who did really well. And one of the things that came out of our debrief workshop just recently with women candidates, which was really interesting, um, most of them were really buoyed by their performance in many respects. You know, a number of women who contested for the first time, you know, and came third or fourth in a field of 30-plus candidates, you know, and they felt that they'd actually run quite successful elections. The reality is... Very few men who contest the first time round win the first time round. There's very strong recognition that running elections, uh, you need to build a profile over um, a long period and build a name. And a number of the women who contested this election um, were seeking to do that and feel that what they did achieve was, was quite successful in that regard. A number of women felt you know, that they had certainly campaigned smarter, they used the limited resources they had much more strategically um, and and different things. And that partly explained, um, you know, how how well they'd done. But a number of women also reported that they felt that they were, you know, they talked about... um, You know, a lot of the fraud that went on in counting rooms this time around, and actually that's another area that I think is a really big difference to previous elections. Um, You know, and I've written about all sorts of problems with the last two elections, but you know, I would have said to you in the past, a lot of checks and balances in counting rooms and it's sort of quite difficult to perpetrate fraud at that level. Um, This time around, most of the checks and balances were ignored, so there was a lot more scope for manipulation in counting rooms as well and capture in counting rooms. And so a number of women who did quite well um, also talked about how that that process was, was much more difficult. So I think, you know, working with women, helping, you know, supporting them to build profiles um, and, you know, to think about how to campaign smarter and use the resources that they have um, more effectively. But unless there's any change in the situation with money politics, with fraud, with violence, it is going to be really difficult.
1: Uh, I might just follow up myself with Bal. Uh, are we going to see any constitutional reforms uh, to reserve seats for women?
0: Yes, the Prime Minister said, in, or said the month before, after he got voted in, that he'll be looking at uh, reviving the uh, argument around the uh, uh, 22 reserve seats, that did not get true because the, uh, the amending bill for the constitutional uh, or the amendment was not passed um, by the last parliament. The other thing that he actually pointed out as well is that the three MPs who were in government, in his last government, uh, they, they represent the voice of the women, but they were not fighting for it. So he himself said he was uh, uh, quite surprised. To see that those three women were not fighting um, for the bill to get through in the last government. I think on that point I should add something. The focus on women's representation is at the national level but my um, I guess my fear is that we are not talking too much about the local level uh, because it is the local level that decides on the women's representation at the national level and and there, there is a missing link there that the women are not or this, this push for women's representation is not happening at the local level government council and those provincial um, a level uh provincial local level, level government council and I think um, if we can get women into becoming councillors and Uh, presidents at that local level and then getting them to become uh, DA for the district uh, we will be making uh, much more progress towards achieving that women recognition whereas now I think the more focus is on this national level and uh, people that I've talked to said that they they don't trust women to to have the tenacity and the capacity to withstand PNG's brutal uh, political environment. Now they come from a perception that male has the ability to do that, whereas women don't. So how do you change the perception? Is I think put women in leadership role at the local level and let them demonstrate their capacity to deal with those brutal, bloody conflicts that is happening at the local level, showing to the people that hey, they are as, as much capable as the men folks. So the push should be happening, how can we get women uh, 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 to become councillors, to become the local presidents of the districts? And once you get women in those positions, which are as much politically charged as being an MP, then I think you you will build a more sustainable uh, framework that will now advocate for women to be at a higher level. So we are not working at the ground level. I think that's my fear that our target is at the higher level and not so much at the local level. Okay. Sorry, just to briefly. On to
3: that. Um, so a couple of things. Um, all of the factors that, you know, the, the sort of structural barriers to women getting elected at the national level um, exist at the local level as well. I mean, I think 2013 LLG election showed us that, you know, money, um, violence, etc., played a very big part... Um, in those elections and talking to women candidates who just contested this election, um, their feeling is that the LLG elections are even more stitched up than the national level elections. So um, But the other thing is coming out of the 2012 elections, there were a number of women who parlayed very credible election losses, like women who came you know, third and fourth in fields of very large fields of, of men. So basically, you know, ran a good election, parlayed that into positions as women's reps on various provincial assemblies. So um, for many women, um, a credible election loss is a pathway to, um, you know, sort of a position of political influence. And so we've got to look at how that works in, in, in reality and some of the women who contest. Etc. and have done well, have again parlayed that into positions as um, women's reps on DDAs and different things. So we need to look at um, women's political participation more broadly and not um, assess it just on any one particular measure.
1: Okay, now we are running out of time, so I'm going to take the next two questions together. Hi, my
3: name's Peter. Thanks for
4: your very
1: interesting uh, talks. Um, First, uh, sort of supplementary on that question up there, isn't part of the reason for the Accounts of violence that up until election day, overt violence was quite rare, and so it could be said that people were able to vote without that (coughs) overt violence. And it was really afterwards that it went uh, tragic and terrible. My um, my question is about the brazenness that Nicole has mentioned, and just what does can we pick at that
5: a bit? Does that mean that people just realise they can get away with more and more and that
1: the, the uh, authorities, those coercive agents of the state are just not enforcing the law and, and it's just going to get worse, I suppose, isn't it? Um,
3: look, I agree completely. I mean, I think if we look at the last few elections, you know, there have been no consequences for the... the um, you know, for the examples of really egregious fraud. And so what we see is particular strategies that one candidate has used in a particular place to get elected in 2007, 2012, and we've seen those strategies um, used by, uh, you know, a larger number of um, candidates uh, and, and by the same candidates more effectively. And so I think, yes, when there, are, when there are absolutely no consequences to that, where um, uh, then the bar just is continually lowered. Is it the most brazen ever? I would say so.
1: Okay. And then in the front. Good afternoon. My name is Mike Pepperday. I have no formal standing, but I've been looking. PNG a long time, I was at in 1969, and after three months I was the longest resident ex expat there. Some people in this room may have read some of what I've written about PNG, and my problem is that there's a structural
4: fault in PNG, that the capture of the electoral system, the capture of the police, and these things are symptoms of something much more fundamental, Namely, that it is a single member electorate system, single member electorates with a single House of Parliament. It has never worked anywhere. It didn't work in Northern Ireland, it didn't work in New Zealand. The worked quite well
0: in New Zealand. What
4: do you <laughs> <laughs> a
3: case it
4: of electoral violence I in New Zealand. It didn't work in New Zealand. And New Zealand changed. Yeah, but not because of electoral violence. No, no, no. It wasn't that bad in New Zealand, but it's never worked anywhere. And what um, I have uh, said is that uh, it has to be a change. I don't think that the House would be appropriate in PNG. Though
1: people may disagree, the electoral system would need to be proportional representation. Oh. I have. Um, okay, Nigel. No, thank- uh, Yonder, Sean Donia, about this and. Uh, he me, he tells me that in New Caledonia they have a PR list, and every... Speam- yep, thank you, thank you. I think we've... ...is FEMA. Yep, okay. So you get uh, FEMA, thank you. Good, sorry, but yeah, on the sort of underlying or fundamental causes and remedies, I don't know, Terence or Ron? It's possible that a shift to proportional representation might help matters somewhat.
4: Remember, of course, that a decade or so ago... About two decades ago, people were saying that a shift to limited preferential voting was going to be transformative for PNG politics, and that clearly hasn't happened. Some of us didn't say that. All right. Uh, There's a somewhat stronger case for a shift to proportional representation, but it brings with it a lot of additional uh, challenges with respect to how you allocate seats across different parts of the country, how you try and prevent parties from stacking their lists with uh, candidates from more populous parts of the country. Things like that. To the extent that proportional representation will help, I think it is very unlikely that it will be transformative. Um, there aren't any examples of countries that have shifted away from what you rightly identify as structural problems that up in New Guinea's politics, just with a stroke of a pen, just with a legislative change. Many of the dynamics that affect electoral politics everywhere on earth, be it New Zealand, be it Papua New Guinea, stem from what they call informal institutions. Matters that arise from the broader political economy of the country. Um, and I think it would be unwise to think that there's an easy solution. That said, a proportional representation is put on the table. I would support you uh, and support people with public Guinea and at least looking at the ramifications. It might be a bad idea,
1: but it won't be a panacea. Rom, did you want to add? Yeah,
2: I mean, I... I, I... I broadly agree with that. I think the other thing you've got to take into account is the number of candidates we've got in Papua New Guinea. I'm not sure that you could bring in any sort of proportional system that's going to address the problems you've got when you've got so many people contesting elections, each with individual bases of support. Uh, And I think, uh, uh, as Terence says, I mean, we we brought in, Papua New Guinea brought in a preferential system in the belief that this would work. They started off with a single-member constituency and the belief that that would lead to a sort of fairly stable two-party system. Maurice de Verger had told us, all oh, that's what would happen. That didn't work. Uh, the uh, referential system is not working, as far as I can see. I think that Part New Guineans are quite capable of subverting any system. <laughs> <laughs>
1: OK, we are running out of time. We did start a bit late. Anyone else want to ask a question? I oh, know we've got one here. We'll have. Um, I think we just have two more questions then. Sorry, Bill. Yes, yeah, so please. Thank you. Um, my name is Sanjay.
5: Um, I'm a here. Yeah, go on. Go on. My name is Sanjay. I'm a student here um, One comment, one question. Um, the election process in BNT is, is a bit of years, and also isn't In terms of the floor plans that we are discussing, they have been chronic. It has been ongoing at every election. And I think uh, that's one of the structural issues that we need to really look look at in terms of how we restructure the process um, in terms of um, um, conducting a robust and transparent um, election. Um, Let's listen to what um, Terence has talked about. Um, The second is just a question in terms of, um, uh, in terms of the, most of the leaders who are elected, um, um, some leaders who are supposed to be, are deserved losers, but they are becoming winners because of the processes around them. And some of those who are deserved to be winners, but they are losers. And that's, um, I'm not really sure how we should probably address that issue, but for example, like, um... Um, not only our current Prime Minister, Peter O'Neill, but there are some of the senior members who were there who have got and allegation name around them. And some of them actually found guilty of leadership um, uh, through leadership tribunal or through criminal charges. But they are still continue to be leaders uh, in the, the Florida Um I'm not sure whether we should address this to our leadership code, um, the Opposition Commission or to criminal um, um, by imposing a string in uh, process of law so that these kind of leaders, you have got a allegation saying on them, by default, or not by default, but by military to the law, There should not be public office. Okay.
1: okay, Okay. we'll take the final question before we go back for final comments to uh, My
0: name is uh I have two questions. Uh, the first thing is uh, the PNG is expecting the, the refer- referendum of the uh, independence of the Bougainville Island next uh, June.
2: So, so this uh, so
0: the result of the election. Uh, how the, do you think that influenced this referendum? This is first my first question. The second question is, this time in this election, the Austrian defense force supported its uh, for the, this election, particularly the transportation of
1: the, uh, how to say, about box, but unfortunately some the of them was destroyed. So do you think it was successful or not? Okay, so I'll allow everyone to make any final answer these two, or respond to the two comments questions and make any final brief comments to wrap up. Oh,
3: thanks. <laughs> um, okay, on the Bougainville question, um, I think the current Prime Minister's made it quite clear that um, that, uh, that he's uh, opposed um, to that. He's come out quite publicly just again quite recently, I think last week or the week before, um, sort of uh, with these pushing the argument that Bougainville hasn't met the conditions um, for the referendum. I mean, colleagues of ours, Anthony Regan in particular, have sort of... Um, being quite vocal about the fact that uh, those are not conditions about whether or not um, the referendum should proceed, but just on the issue of timing of the referendum, um, although um, the Prime Minister seems to be pushing the line that um, it doesn't need to proceed if the conditions haven't been met. So uh, I think that's a definitely a wait-and-see um, situation if that, if that happens, and there may well be some sort of Um, Melanesian sort of solution or, you know, agreement to postpone it or whatever, so I don't think that... um, Yeah, I I really think we have to wait and see whether the the referendum proceeds as expected. Um, The second... Sorry, what's...? The ADF. Oh, the ADF. Yeah, look, um, the... You know, in, in recent elections, ADF have been involved as well uh, in terms of support with uh, logistics um, and different things. But the particular case that I was talking about, where those ballot boxes were destroyed, um, the ADF weren't involved in the logistics in, in, in those cases. That was a, a private um, contract in terms of distribution of the, the ballot boxes. And in that particular case, A good example of using a strategy that had worked previously um, in the uh, 2002 elections that failed in Southern Highlands. one of the things that was done was that they didn't um, send out the choppers to pick up the ballot boxes. Um, I talked in that case about 21 boxes being destroyed. There was another further 19 ballot boxes from 1LLG that weren't counted were set aside because they sat out there for for five days and that was because there was no chopper sent to pick up the ballot boxes. Um, That was a strategy that had been successfully used in the past um, and in that particular case, the the contractor that um, was contracted to to take the boxes out and and receive them uh, was associated with a particular candidate. So, um, you know, you can't put the logistical... I mean, I I wouldn't put any of the assessment about logistics and how that played out down to um, to the to the ADF. I mean, I think they play an important role with what they've done in terms of getting um, materials out to the key provinces. But the sort of capture then that happens on election day at the local level, at the district level, um, you know, that they they have no influence over.
1: Uh, any final remarks?
3: I
4: might help. Were we gonna... <laughs> going to... Go on, I was just going to say, one thing that is worth noting is that there are many, many problems with elections in Papua New Guinea at present. Everything that's been discussed today is real. But if you look back into the history of most of the uh, current OECD countries, you can find analogous problems or very similar problems in the way their elections were conducted and in the nature of their politics. So if you want a positive story to end with, it is... Possible for countries to transition out of the state that Papua New currently finds itself in. And if you go somewhere like UPG and you meet some of the young enthusiastic students who are really eager to try and find solutions
3: to their country's problems,
4: it's also possible to believe that this could happen. It's not going to be easy. I'm not gonna um, be polyannerish about this. However, uh, it isn't worth uh, it is worth painting a picture that's somewhat Uh, focus focus on things other than just the negatives because it's in the positives that you'll find the potential for future change to come in in the beginning. Let me add a a qualified
2: optimistic point to that. Um, I think when we talk about election related violence, uh, we've got to consider that it's, it's part of the cycle. I mean, all sorts of conflicts are heightened at the time of an election. The outcome of the election uh, reinforces some of those and creates others, which will be played out in that period between that election and the next one. Uh, and there are differences across the country where this violence is greatest. Uh, we all know that the Highlands is very volatile. I, I like to work in nice peaceful places like Eusebic where things work a bit better. Uh, but we, we have that history. We see more and more violence creeping into the Port Moresby elections as the ethnic diversity of the population changes. Um, and uh, one of our colleagues at the Word University has recently borrowed a, a term that I think I first used in relation to Bill So I kept saying, when you're talking pessimistically about part New beginning, remember, you're talking about Chimbu. Uh, but um, uh, we now have people talking about the Highlandization of Madang politics, you know. So there, there is violence going on and it gets concentrated elections. What I would like to point out on a positive note, however, is that in Papua New Guinea, the country seems to have a remarkable ability to have fraud elections, outbursts of localised violence after the elections, and then just get back on with running the country as best it does. Um, we should be looking at countries like Kenya, for example, uh, and take inspiration from the fact that we get our <laughs> elections in Papua New Guinea over fairly well, and, and then get back to what goes for normal in Papua New Guinea. We don't have this long drawn out dispute of the election returns nationally that we have in so many other countries, and I think that's one of the positives we've got to draw from from the fraud elections that, that seem to work more or
0: less.
1: Okay, we'll give the last word to you, Val.
0: Thank you. I think I have the last two points. Firstly, just on the Bougainville case. The spendings that the government is now committed to the APEC next year will affect uh, its preparation for Bougainville. That's why one of the reasons why Prime Minister wasn't sure if Bougainville will have to go go ahead. Obviously, Australia and New Zealand will step in to fund, but Prime Minister O'Neill, I believe, would like to have a control of the situation. And if he's not financially in a position to have a control of how it's run, then he's likely to push it further. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, with the APEC coming, it can affect how Bougainville uh, case is going. The other thing is well on the notion of uh, the APEC, I think court and police would be conscious with O'Neill's case. They don't want to create a situation of instability before the APEC. So court's judgment on O'Neill's case and um, uh, police actions on, on, the, on the case will take into account the, the need for stability. Now, for those who want this case to be settled, this is a bad thing, uh, but courts have done it before. They've shown that they've taken into account broader sense of interest, national interest. So we don't want, it. I mean, hopefully, APEC will, will not uh, contribute much to deciding how the is run, but definitely they are, some linkages there one can put, uh, both affecting Bougainville and the court case. The second point, um, if I may put to the audience, is that election cases, I see it as an outcome of deep state infrastructural situations that are really uh, creating an environment, a, uh, a predatory uh, political such of environment where people find that they could find some solution to the electoral process. And so DSIP control and the um, uh, politicization of the uh, public se- sector has made people to be at a point of such a, such a desperation that every five years they are yearning for the savior. And when people are yearning for the savior, they will go crazy every five years doing all means possible under the sun to get their savior in, because the system has failed them for the last five years. So there is a five years uh, hype going every, every, um, every election. So I think if we get back to the drawing table, how do you create a situation where people feel that the state is looking after them? There's no disconnection between the nation and the state. And then they will now approach the election as a continuity of what is otherwise normal. But now the election is becoming a savior-oriented uh, period. So people are, you know, are doing everything possible to get their men in and get as much possible from the big leviathan, which is the state. So I think that's, that's something to look at as well. We, we would like to probably um, think about how do we create a, a, a state that sustains the people for five years and not make that sense of disconnection where they find desperation when it comes to
1: election time. Okay. Well, on that note, we are out of time. In fact, we've gone over time, but I'm sure you'll agree it was worth it. So I hope you've uh, enjoyed it. I've certainly found it fascinating. Please, uh, let's all thank the panel for their great contributions.
0: You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.